You're listening to Washington Post Live's First Look podcast with Jonathan Capehart. Welcome to First Look, Washington Post Live's one-stop shop for news and analysis. I'm Jonathan Capehart, associate editor for The Washington Post. Well, the February jobs numbers are out and they are strong. 311,000 jobs created, wages up 4.6%. The unemployment rate is up 3.6%, up from January because folks are out looking for work. Uh, here to put it all in context is Abba Batarai. She is the economics correspondent for The Washington Post. Abba, welcome to First Look. Thanks for having me, Jonathan. All right. What do the February jobs numbers signal to you about the economy and how might they affect future action by the Federal Reserve? Well, the jobs numbers show that the labor market is still extremely strong. Um, the Federal Reserve has been aggressively raising interest rates, hoping to slow down the economy enough to bring down inflation. And so far, the job market is holding on tight. Um, we are starting to see some signs of moderation. Um, you know, overall numbers are down from January. Wage growth is petering off a little bit, and the unemployment rate went up. So those are those are comforting signs to the Federal Reserve. But I think overall, this is still an extremely, extremely strong job market. And that's going to um, require that the Fed maybe even move more aggressively than it has been. And, and I want to talk about the Fed, hopefully, in, in a little bit. But let's talk about the workers, because you've done great reporting on how workers are missing from the labor force or have yet to return to it since the height of the pandemic. What's behind this? Who are these folks and, and where did they go? Great question. Um, so by some counts, we're still down about two or three million workers from what we would have had without the pandemic. It's a confluence of different factors. A lot of that is early retirements, people who um, maybe weren't quite of retirement age, but decided to sit things out because of COVID. There's also been a long-term slowdown in immigration that's um, making it difficult for employers to find workers. And we're also seeing, you know, people with long COVID who aren't able to work at the same levels that they were before. So there are a number of reasons that are keeping people out of work. There's also been a broader shift in the types of jobs that people are taking. You know, early in the pandemic, we saw a lot of service workers in particular lose their jobs and they ended up leaving the restaurant industry or childcare or, um, you know, different, the hotel industry for office work. And so that's led to very visible shortages in service jobs. And let's talk about women in particular, and in particular, single women. Um, they're driving the economy more than ever. Tell us about what you learned in your reporting about women and the workforce. Yeah, women have come roaring back into the workforce at far higher rates than men have. That's particularly true for single women and for parents of young mothers of young children. Um, but at the same time, there's still a very stubborn wage gap that means that women are making about 82 cents to the to one every dollar that a man makes. And so there's still, um, you know, there's still room for improvement across the board. And and I'm looking because um, this story that you wrote is in the paper, the actual newspaper today. And there's a stunning statistic, a record 52 percent of women were unmarried in 2021. Real fast. Why is that a significant statistic? Well, we've been seeing the marriage rate drop for a while, and people, as women put off marriage or decide to just not get married at all, that means they're more likely to work. Um, there's data showing that single women are more likely to be in the labor force. They're more likely to buy homes. They're more likely to get college degrees, and those are all very important for the economy. 
Um, on the flip side, there is still a major gap in how much women are paid and single women in particular, as well as how much wealth they're able to amass and sort of, you know, what their safety net looks like. All right. Let's talk about the Fed and Fed Chairman Jerome Powell. He testified before the Senate Banking Committee um, this week and endured bipartisan criticism from both Senators Elizabeth Warren of Massachusetts and John Kennedy of Louisiana. What was that about? Yeah, you know, the Fed has gotten a lot of criticism, not just this week, but over the last couple of years. <laughs> um, there's a real sense that they they were very slow to act on inflation. For much of 2021, they were very dismissive, saying that, you know, things would be okay. This is just a temporary blip because of the pandemic. Things would go back to normal soon. And by the time they decided, by the time they realized that inflation was going to be a long-term problem that required aggressive action, um, a lot of people thought it was too late. That said, we heard a surprising um, openness this week from Chair Powell to be even more aggressive, to, to perhaps um, move more swiftly uh, than it has been. And I think there was a sense last year, late last year, for a little while, that maybe the economy was slowing enough that the Fed could take a pause, take a break, sort of see where things were landing. But now I think that's gone out the window. Things are, um, it's becoming very clear that the Fed is gonna have to continue on the course that it's on. And when's the next Fed meeting where um, the Fed will say whether interest rates uh, will, whether they will raise interest rates? It's coming up later this month. Later, later this month. That's like in a in a, in a couple of weeks. Um, one of the things that came to mind in looking at these numbers and listening to you about yeah, the economy is is still strong, job creation is strong, wages uh, are. Are up. People are jumping back into the into the labor market. I'm just wondering: has the possibility of a soft landing that we kept talking about last year, of uh, the dream scenario in which inflation falls and the job market remains strong, has that decreased in probability? It's looking less likely. And if it is to happen, it's going to be a very narrow path that's going to allow it to happen. You know, the Fed has consistently pointed to the hot job market as the reason that there might be a soft landing, that we might be able to um, escape larger turmoil in the economy. But by the same token, that hot job market could also keep inflation high. And so it's really, it's really a balancing act and it's not clear which way things are gonna go. Okay, so yesterday the president released his uh, FY 2024 budget. He didn't do it at the White House. He did it in Pennsylvania, swing state of Pennsylvania. Uh, it's an opening salvo in the battles um, to come between the White House and the Republican majority. Has Speaker McCarthy signaled when his majority will present its response or its own budget plan? No, and that's, that's the big question, is when the congressional Republicans will come up with their plan. Um, as of now, we just know that they're not, they're not on board with Biden's, but he, uh, President Biden has made it very clear that the next move is up to them, that he's waiting to see a counter offer. And then uh, last question for you. We know Republicans, the one thing we do know that the Republican majority um, wants to do, they want to cut spending, but they want to do it with Medicare and Social Security off the table. So what do they have their eyes on to cut? You know, Jonathan, that's beyond my realm of reporting, so I'm, I honestly am not sure. <laughs> well, you know what? That that was unfair of me. I think, you know, I think economics, that's budget's got numbers in it. Let's just ask Ava. She knows. 
<laughs> but Abba, thank you very much. Abba Batarai, economics correspondent for The Washington Post. Thank you for coming to First Look. Have a good weekend. Thank you. <laughs> going to keep the conversation going with our opinions roundtable in just a moment. Let's go to the opinion side of The Washington Post, where we will find associate editor of The Washington Post, Ruth Marcus, and deputy opinion editor for The Washington Post, David Vondrelli. Uh, Ruth, David, welcome back to First Look. Good morning. Hi, Jonathan. So I've got all these planned questions, but there are so many things that uh, that we have to talk about that aren't here. First, the, the February jobs numbers, 311,000 jobs, 3.6% unemployment, a tick up from January, but that's because people are starting to look for work real quickly. Ruth, I'll start with you. Um, good news for the American people or bad in that you know, interest rates could get jacked up because of it? I think that the technical answer to that question is yes. I mean, we've been in this mind-bending discussion for months now. Where if, it's first, if you are one of those people who got a job, it is good news for you. Uh, if you are um, somebody who is being hit by inflation, it could be bad news for you. And that's the conundrum that Chair Powell finds himself in and others find themselves in. And I want to say one thing um, in defense of the stumper that you asked to Abba. There's a reason that she doesn't have an answer to that question, which is nobody, Republicans or Democrats, wants to be clear about anything painful they want to do in terms of cuts. And so um, the Republicans have been understandably reluctant uh, to say what they want to cut other than, and I'm sorry if there's a little whininess in the background here, it's a dog that is wanting attention and more, even more oh, treats. Bring the dog, give the dog no, you, don't, you, don't, you don't want him as much as he <laughs> would like to be a Washington Post star. Anyway, uh, so uh, like show us, sh show us the fiscal responsibility would be my message to uh, congressional Republicans. Mm -hmm. And actually both sides. Okay. Uh-huh, David. Well, what can one add to to Ruth the first thing in the morning? Uh, that was a pretty perfect, uh, you know, tour of the waterfront. Uh, the uh, we, <laughs> the jobs uh, conundrum is difficult because we do need Americans at work. Uh, it, that's related to the whole story of uh, entitlements, Medicare and Medicaid and Social Security, because if Americans aren't working, they're not paying those taxes, and uh, those uh, programs become even more out of whack than they are. Uh, you know, long term, the labor force of the United States is a big question mark, especially when we're so hostile. Uh, as a nation to uh, the idea of immigration. And so uh, short term, uh, we have to get a handle on inflation. And that means that as difficult as Chairman Powell's job is, in my opinion, uh, the job is to keep putting on the brakes until uh, we break the back of inflation. Um, as I mentioned uh, earlier with Abba, uh, you know, President Biden released his budget yesterday. He did it in Pennsylvania. Um, let's watch this from yesterday when uh, the president challenged House Speaker McCarthy. Well, let's make a deal. Let's meet. I'm, I said, I'm going to introduce my budget on the 9th of March. You introduce yours and we'll sit down. We'll go line by line and we'll go through it. We'll see what we can agree on and what we disagree on and then fight it out in the Congress. 
So I want to make it clear, I'm ready to meet with the Speaker anytime, tomorrow, if he has his budget. Lay it down, tell me what you want to do, I'll show you what I want to do, see what we can agree on, if we don't agree on, let's see what we, we vote on. And so, Ruth, we, this might, um, you know, have you repeat what you just said, but, you know, the president is fond of saying, don't tell me what you value, show me your budget, and I'll tell you what you value. So what does he value, and did he persuasively and effectively throw down the gauntlet? Well, um, the snarky thing that I'm tempted to say, so I'm just going to go ahead and say it, is that he values getting reelected. Um, <laughs> and, so, and so it's easy when you know that congressional Republicans are not going to agree to what you've proposed to propose a lot of new spending on some very worthwhile things like environmental programs and child care. Um, but you're never going to have to come up with the money to pay for it. In defense of the president, I would say that he has talked uh, about doing something very important, um, which is raising taxes. But he's only talking about raising taxes on he's very uh, intent on keeping that to people who are making over four hundred thousand dollars a year. That is necessary, but it's not sufficient. He has been very clear and has kind of bullied the Republicans to go along with him in terms of um, absolutely no cuts, he says, to either Social Security or Medicare. And one thing that his budget is particularly silent on is what we're going to do about Social Security, which is going to run out of money. And the longer we spend ignoring that problem, the harder that problem becomes to solve. It is solvable, but it is going to take a combination of um, tax increases and some benefit cuts. The benefit cuts should be to the higher income earners so it doesn't hurt people who are relying solely on social security. Um, you won't find that in the president's budget. Um, David, the one thing we do know for sure is that, to Ruth's point, the president's budget that he released yesterday is DOA uh, uh, on Capitol Hill. So my question is, do House Republicans have the unity discipline, uh, the unity and the discipline to produce a compelling alternative let alone a cre credible budget response? Well, Ruth earlier went with yes. I'm going to go with no here. Uh, the House Republicans don't have the unity and uh, vision and uh, teamwork to uh, walk from one end of the hall to the other together, <laughs> uh, let alone to put a budget together and uh, and try to you know pass it. That's not going to happen. Um, and so we're going to, Ultimately, I think, you know, somehow kind of bump our way through this year. The big picture is that we've lived as a government because of various crises, the Great Recession, the COVID uh, pandemic. We've lived as if uh, <clears throat> there's infinite money. Uh, we've doubled the size of our national debt in the space of about 10 years. And now, Service on that debt, the interest has become an almost trillion dollar budget item all by itself. And this is a problem that ultimately is going to have to be faced, but voters are going to have to uh, uh, somehow uh, get more you know, serious about these uh, issues and elect some uh, leaders who are able to embrace responsibility. Jonathan, um, can I just jump in one second? If I suggested that the congressional Republicans had their act together enough to come up with a coherent 
uh, sensible or even quite any budget at all. I certainly didn't mean to do that. It was just that I wasn't caffeinated enough um, because I completely agree with David's assessment. Nobody, nobody wants to put forward these things because they require making uh, difficult choices, especially they require making difficult choices when you know it's not the president who's doing a budget that is dead on arrival, but the people who actually have the power of the purse and need to pass some form of spending in order to keep the government going. Um, Ruth, real quick, what's the name of our um, of our budget correspondent, our Barkey budget <laughs> correspondent? This is Augie. Here's Augie. a treat. I'm trying to keep him quiet. Um, and here he is. Say hi, Augie. Okay, the, the Washington Post Live's but Barky budget correspondent, Augie. He's <laughs> very concerned about both the debt and the deficit, and particularly interest rates, as David um, pointed out. But his um, human sisters will be very happy he got his moment in the sun. So I'm sorry about this, guys. No, this, no, this is quite all right. This is quite all right. Um, but I do <clears throat> want to take a, a, a serious turn here and talk about some scary news out of Washington yesterday, and that is Senate Minority Leader Mitch McConnell tripping, falling, and, and suffering a concussion um, after an event at a Washington hotel. Um, David, um, he is the minority leader, but can you talk just a little bit about the importance of McConnell and that um, having McConnell sideline, what that could possibly mean for, I don't want to say legislating, but potential governing on Capitol Hill? Yeah, um, I, I think it's an excellent question. Mitch McConnell is, <clears throat> has shown himself, whether you agree with him or not, to be one of the most effective party leaders um, in modern history. And he has, in the past couple of years, led the Republican Party in the direction of, well, in the direction away from uh, uh, blind Trumpism. Uh, he has consistently stood up to Trump since uh, January 6th and has, in that sense, been a voice of reason that other Republicans who are perhaps a little less uh, skillful or a little less courageous could, uh, you know, gather and hide behind, in a sense. Um, we need that voice in Washington. Um, I've not always been a fan of uh, Senator McConnell's, but I find right now that he's a critical figure in our politics. Mm -hmm. And Ruth, to, to David's point, uh, my mind immediately went to the debt ceiling because the other thing about Mitch McConnell is that he was a key negotiating partner with then Vice President Biden during the big debt ceiling crisis of 2011. Those two men served in the Senate for together for a very long time. Um, they they know each other well inside and out. Um, if Mitch McConnell is sidelined now, as now President Biden has to compel Congress to raise the debt ceiling, does that put us in even more danger of breaching the debt ceiling if such a key negotiator on Capitol Hill is is um, uh, potentially sidelined? Uh, potentially, I, I need to be David's editor once again for a moment and say uh, I would call McConnell a voice of relative reason, um, especially yeah. in terms of standing up to Donald Trump. If he had led a um, movement to convict Trump 
uh, we would uh, in the uh, second Senate impeachment, we would not be in the position that we are right now. So slight dissent on that. Um, the but McConnell, I mean, Kevin McCarthy, and I'm going to now take a moment and say an unusual um, nice thing about Kevin McCarthy. Kevin McCarthy understands the significance of the debt ceiling and recognizes that it is a line that can't be crossed. The question is whether he's got the capacity to lead his troops to recognize that reality. Um, to the extent that Senator McConnell is not around to help him do that, um, that is a bad thing um, for the country. And so uh, I join everybody in wishing Senator McConnell a, a quick recovery. Um, we've got about eight minutes left, and that's lots of time to talk about the incredible lawsuit, uh, Dominion versus Fox. So um, Dominion alleges Fox knowingly aired false conspiracy theories that its voting machines had a role in Trump's loss in the 2020 presidential election. Fox has said that Dominion used, quote, cherry-picked, quote, stripped of key context and spilled considerable ink on facts that are irrelevant under black-letter principles of defamation law. Uh, and Fox has accused the voting technology company of trying to, quote, silence the press through its lawsuit. Ruth, of the three people on the screen right now, as far as I know, you're the only lawyer. So talk to us about the legal standard of actual malice, what it means, how it's relevant here, and why it, it makes suing for defamation relatively hard in the United States. Um, relatively hard. It should be hard. Um, we uh, at the Washington Post are the subject of lawsuits from none other than the Trump campaign alleging that we defame them. We, in fact, in the opinion section, in order to win that case or in order for Dominion to win its case against Fox, um, it will need to show because um, uh, like President Trump, Dominion is a, a public figure that Fox added with acted, excuse me, with knowing or reckless disregard for the truth. Um, that actual malice doesn't mean um, Fox hated them. It means knowing or reckless disregard. So they, they either had to know that what they were saying was false or to have so ignored the evidence that it crossed the line into recklessness. I, I am not in the habit of rooting against media defendants. I think that the protections of the First Amendment, the protections that were so importantly set out by the Supreme Court in New York Times v. Sullivan in 1964, are essential to our ability to conduct a robust debate. And that is true for The Washington Post. It is true for Fox News. But I have to say, looking at the evidence that Dominion has amassed and some of which it's put into the public record, um, some of it is just delicious stuff that goes to the utter hypocrisy of uh, people at Fox News who, um, you know, the quotes about Tucker Carlson saying he absolutely detests Donald Trump and things like that. But some of it goes to the state of mind. And it seems to show that Fox understood that the um, information that it was peddling, the information that it allowed um, to be put on its airwaves. And it doesn't matter whether Fox people have said it or whether they simply broadcast other people saying it, that they understood that there was no basis for that information. And so I think Fox is in a potential heap. Um, Dominion is asking for 1.6 billion. That's a very big heap, but in a heap of trouble here. Mm -hmm. And David, you know, hearing Rupert Murdoch admit that Fox News hosts lied and seeing Tucker Carlson, as Ruth just mentioned, Texas hatred of Donald Trump is, of course, 
juicy, or as Ruth said, delicious. <laughs> but it's hard to overstate how influential Fox News is in American politics. A national poll conducted by the Washington Post and the University of Maryland um, assessed where people get their news about politics and government. Among Republicans, only two, oh, only two, there were only two sources, local television and Fox News. And so, David, how do you think this lawsuit pl plays out for Fox outside of the, the texting behavior of a few hosts? Will anything at Fox really change, do you think? Um, <clears throat> I think, yes. Will it, it, it'll change around the edges. Um, there'll be a lot more lawyers and a lot more conversations going forward. The only way I see this ending is with a large settlement, uh, very expensive for Fox, but they can afford it because they are an extremely profitable company. I assume their insurance is very significant. If you want to know, are they aware of their problem? All you have to do is look at what happened the minute Dominion uh, started talking about a lawsuit. All the talk about the rigged voting machines immediately shut down at Fox. It ended. A couple of hosts uh, lost their uh, contracts, relationships uh, with Fox. Uh, they knew they were in trouble from minute one. And uh, whenever you see lawyers uh, start throwing around fancy language like black letter law and so on and so forth, you can tell they don't have a case. Uh, they're uh, At some point, Dominion is going to announce its number and Fox is going to pay it. And will Fox be dead then or become a, a, a less uh, entertainment, quote unquote, entertainment oriented uh, uh, programmer? No, they're going to keep following that business model, but a lot more carefully. You know, as a, a as someone who who anchors a show on MSNBC <clears throat> and therefore, you know, is paying attention to the ratings. I got to tell folks who are watching, Fox is the number one cable channel in the country by multiples. Um, we get excited if we come near CNN, <laughs> beating CNN, forget about Fox. But real, real quickly, um, Fox is framing this lawsuit as an attack on the First Amendment. Really, Ruth? Well, I actually want to go back to ratings because they're really important. One of, part of the information that came out in the lawsuit is in the in the depositions that have been released um, is how attentive Fox and you know uh, everybody is. We now have internal um, numbers, and we used to think that we were just too big to think about ratings. We think about traffic ourselves, but Fox understood that its viewers, to the extent that they had made the um, correct decision actually to call Arizona for Joe Biden, that its viewers were angry, that they were losing viewership, that they needed to do things to get back in the good graces of their viewers. And so um, it, this is very terrible information from the um, Fox lawyers point of view that shows um, not just a, a knowing and potentially not just a knowing and reckless disregard for the truth, but a motive to allow this kind of information to be aired. Um, but should we be worried about the First Amendment? Yes, of course. We need to do two things simultaneously, and this is why I believe 
that the court struck the right balance in Times v. Sullivan and the subsequent cases. There is, it is very hard to win a libel suit. It is also um, very easy to file a libel suit. And the, the really critical thing is um, to make sure if you are a news organization and you have to defend yourself in a libel suit, if you get to the point that Fox is at where you are basically at the point of a jury trial or a trial, um, it's gonna cost you millions and millions of dollars simply to defend yourself, even if you end up being found not liable in any mm -hmm. way. Um, that's where we need to be um, looking at efforts to actually contra um, Donald Trump and contra Ron DeSantis, to use a fancy legal term. That's where we need to be looking at efforts to make things better for libel right. defendants, not worse. Right, um, and um, we've got to go. I just want to be clear, the Fox folks, we're concerned about the audience because they were worried about their bottom line, as we saw one text message um, yeah. fr uh, from Tucker Carlson. I just want to be clear. I'm focused. I'm obsessed with ratings because I just want to see if people are watching. <laughs> we're competitive, right? We are, Ruth, we are all competitors, right? Ruth Marcus, first look, <laughs> right? Ruth Marcus, uh, Augie, David Vondrelli. We gotta go. Thank, <laughs> thanks to all of you for coming to First Look. Have a great weekend. Thank Bye. you. Thanks for listening. To always stay up to date with First Look, subscribe to Washington Post Live's First Look on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen.